0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, photographer, rock and roll drummer, and mom. Hi, Michelle.
1: Hi, Jeremy. And hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: Believe it or not, this is episode 95 of Lighthearted. We started back in June 2019. There's been at least one episode per week since then. I'm having a blast talking to so many interesting people and learning so much about lighthouses. As anyone who listens knows, we talk about all kinds of things related to lighthouses. Today we're going to be talking with filmmaker Rob Apps, who just completed a new documentary film called The Last Light Keepers. And we're going to chat with Dwight Berry about visiting the lighthouses of the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Before we talk with Rob, let's talk a little bit about today's date. This episode is being posted on December 28, 2020.
1: On December 28, 1946, an edition of the Saturday Evening Post was published that featured a classic cover. The painting on the cover by Mead Schaefer depicted Hudson Athens Lighthouse on the Hudson River in New York, with a keeper and a young son rowing a boat to the lighthouse with a Christmas tree and presents. While the rest of the family waits anxiously on the outside deck of the lighthouse. Christmas at the Lighthouse is one of the most famous lighthouse paintings ever. The artist, Mead Schaefer was also famous for doing illustrations for books, including Moby Dick and Les Miserables.
0: On December 28, 1857, Cape Flattery Light Station in the state of Washington began service. The first keeper at Cape Flattery was George Garish. He and two assistants quit after only two months because of the station's isolation and danger from the local Native Americans. The next keeper, Franklin Tucker, also quit after three months, adding low pay to the list of grievances. The light still functions today with a modern solar-powered optic, meaning Coast Guard maintenance crews don't have to visit the remote spot very often.
1: On December 28, 1934, the English actress Maggie Smith was born. She's won two Oscars and is probably best known today as one of the stars of the series Downton Abbey. She once said, and I quote, speak your mind, even if your voice shakes. End quote.
0: So as I mentioned, today we'll be speaking with filmmaker Rob Apps about his new documentary. Please tell our listeners about Rob Apps, Michelle.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Rob Apps was born and raised in Reading, Massachusetts, but he spent summers on the coast of Maine and at Great East Lake in New Hampshire boating, fishing, and exploring. After graduating from Ithaca College with a degree in cinema production, he's worked almost 10 years in creative marketing. After realizing he had a passion for documentary storytelling, he opened his own marketing studio, Wandergroove, helping small businesses and nonprofits tell their story.
0: He's spent five years working on his new documentary, the Last Light Keepers. It focuses on a number of people in the world of lighthouse preservation, members of nonprofit organizations, historians, lighthouse owners, and others. The film is now available for viewing on Amazon. I had a chance to speak with Rob a few weeks ago. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with my friend Rob Apps, the filmmaker Rob Apps. Rob, I believe, is uh, speaking to me from his home in beautiful Guilford, New Hampshire, in the Lakes region. The reason we're talking today is that uh, Rob has directed a new independent film called The Last Light Keepers, which we're going to talk about. And I'll just mention before we uh, get into talking about the film that Rob has also co-hosted a couple of episodes of this podcast, and we need to do that again sometime. So thanks so much for joining me today, Rob.
2: Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I hope this, uh, this isn't payback for the last five years of me asking you about a million questions about lighthouses.
0: <laughs> it didn't seem like a million questions. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Let's start with the kind of the background on what led you to do the film. I've
2: been toying around with a few ideas. And I'd worked on a lot of short films and and really wanted to take on a feature documentary as a a personal journey. And for a feature, you need a topic that has some depth and, of course, a lot of interest in it. And uh, Lighthouses popped up. Um, I think it was around 2014. um, My dad was on the GSA auction website and came across a couple of Lighthouses for sale. I think it was Boone Island and Halfway Rock were already going through the bidding process. I had no idea that You know what a lighthouse would sell for. I didn't even know they were selling. Clearly, this was 15 years into the program already. So I started doing some more research, and in the meantime, I was working on uh, my first short documentary, "The Stones of the Quarries," which was just about uh, the granite quarrying industry in Cape Ann and where all those stones went. And one of those places happened to be Graves Light in Boston Harbor. And so I was in touch with Dave Waller through my manager, who had worked with him in the past, and um, they were relatively early in the restoration process at a uh, Graves light. And so we took a dive boat out there one morning and I just wanted to take a couple shots of the lighthouse for my documentary. And after I finished the film, I started looking a bit more into lighthouses and I believe I came across you Jeremy. And, um, that fall, I had my very first shoot with you inside Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse. Um, mm-hmm. we had planned an interview for probably an hour or so, and I think it turned into four hours. I kind of <laughs> held you hostage in the lighthouse and uh you know we talked about the history and the nhlpa and the keepers and stories and hurricanes and hauntings and shortly after that i knew this was a much bigger story than i imagined and i kind of had to had to hit the drawing board again and and that kind of happened several times throughout filming the story was just so large i kind of had to figure out how to wrap my head around it and tell the story in a 60 to 90 minute documentary
0: so you mentioned that the kind of germ of the idea, the, the, the roots of the film kind of uh, go back to 2014, but when did you start kind of working on it in earnest? How long would you say you worked on the film?
2: Yeah, the film probably took around five years on and off. It became overwhelming as an independent filmmaker. Um, it's a true independent film. I'm producing it. I'm directing it. I'm filming it, I'm editing it, interviewing it, lugging gear, traveling around New England all by myself. Um, occasionally I had a few filmmakers come with me to help on a, a several interviews, but I'd, I'd hit some roadblocks. People would be interested, then they would fall out of touch. Um, I would get overwhelmed with regular work, you know, my nine to five. And then there was filming, you know, restrictions, timelines not matching, poor weather, you name it, it happened. And um, the biggest thing was trying to condense all these stories when i originally set out i was telling individual stories of people in lighthouses and I was trying to figure out how i could collect all this information into one timeline that had some sort of a continuous flow and then that was what i ultimately came up with was uh, intertwining some of these historical moments of the past and parts of our lighthouses in new england in parallel with uh, the current preservation efforts that are happening today
0: We'll talk a little bit more about the content in a little while, but just a a quick uh, question without getting too technical. I'm wondering what kind of equipment you use to shoot the film.
2: Technology is constantly evolving. You could buy some equipment one year and the following year, that same brand, out with a brand-new camera, that's ten times better. So I own um, a small Sony DSLR camera. Um, I have some wireless lavalier mics, a few lenses, a GoPro. Um, it's just a, a lot of this was how could I stay nimble when you're traveling to some of these offshore remote lighthouses? What can I fit in a bag or a couple backpacks and be able to jump on a, a small rubber raft and land at halfway rock, you know, with the the waves crashing on you? Um, I also had a, a DJI Phantom 4 Pro, which is just a, a drone um, with a built-in camera, so I could take all these great aerial shots. You know, the landscape's beautiful, and you want to show you know, how unique all these locations are. And um, I also have a a DJI Ronin, which is a stabilizer where you can put a small DSLR camera on And So when I'm following people around all these locations, you can keep the camera steady. So it doesn't look, you know, like the Blair Witch Project or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I I used minimal equipment for two reasons. One was just to be budget friendly, but the bigger reason was just to stay nimble. I don't think I lost one piece of equipment during this journey, which is pretty incredible. Unless someone maybe... Found a small battery on Thatcher Island somewhere. Hmm. Otherwise, I think I I think I handled it pretty well.
0: I usually lose about ten lens caps a day when I'm out photographing.
2: You always find them in your back pocket later that day.
0: Exactly. I was going to mention that I did drop one camera. Uh, I was in Nova Scotia. I dropped a ca- a small point-and-shoot camera that I had as a backup. It was in my pocket. I sat down on a, a stone breakwater. And the camera fell out of my, my pocket and I could hear it going boink, 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 boink down <laughs> between these rocks, you know, deep, deep, deep down into this breakwater.
2: I will say it's dangerous when you're out at some of these places with some of this gear. You get you get nervous all the time. Some of the shoots I was able to double dip on some rental gear that I had used for other projects. And I get a little nervous out there with some of this equipment because, yeah, those, those accidents can happen easily just when you're when you least expect it or just when you step on the wrong rock it might be a little too slippery
0: well I gotta say that the the fit your film looks expensive I mean that is a, a great compliment it looks absolutely beautiful the drone footage uh, looks uh, fantastic and you mentioned the steady cam I saw you using that when you uh, filmed me and that creates a, a really nice feel to the whole whole film you you, you have a a great visual sense and uh, I think anybody seeing this will recognize that. You just mentioned the fact that you were uh, shooting at some remote offshore lighthouses. I'm wondering if there are any especially memorable incidents that happened during filming.
2: Of course. One summer I was, I was fortunate enough to stay at Thatcher Island with Paul St. Germain and we went out to film at sunset and I was trying to film at sunrise and sunset on the landscape. It's beautiful at all these lighthouses and when you pair it with the sunrise and the setting you get all these magical colors. in New England, you know, the blues and purples and oranges and pinks. Um I tell everyone I chose a film about lighthouses because it would make me look like a better cinematographer than I really was because it kinda it kinda feels like cheating when you're at these locations. But anyways, Paul and I were we walking around Thatcher Island and as you know, I'm sure you've been there, the seagulls really huh. own that island. Um it's it's borderline insanity. They dive bomb your head when you're walking too close to the nests, which are everywhere really we we're walking across uh the islands of north tower and he's telling me a story about how one of the keepers there saved woodrow wilson's ship returning back from the treaty of versailles signing and they came across that drowning in a fog and he's telling me the story and as we're walking across the island the wind began to pick up and storm clouds started to roll in and the sky turned this dark purple and gray and it's, it's kind of funny because when i shows, dates to film, I, I tried to make sure the weather was nice because you never really want to get your equipment wet or when you're walking across the island or anywhere around these lighthouses, you don't really want to be walking around the rain and lightning. But we ended up getting caught in the North Tower during a lightning storm and the fog took over the island and the rain started pounding on the lantern room and, you know, there's lightning strikes everywhere. And this lasted maybe 45 minutes. So it was pretty quick. And by the time we came back down... In the tower the rain had stopped and the clouds cleared and the sun began setting and the sky turned yellow and orange and it was it was absolutely beautiful and this was all in the span of an hour and i couldn't have planned that it was absolutely terrifying and gorgeous at the same time and to parallel that with a story from the past and experience it on the island it was a bit serendipitous and it was a, almost felt like a little bit of time travel in a sense
0: about halfway rock anything uh, interesting happened there your your footage of halfway rock the landing at halfway rock is absolutely incredible
2: yeah and and you you know that's the way you get onto some of these these islands i mean halfway rock is just surrounded by crashing waves and there's this one little narrow i don't even know what you would call it a, a ramp really it's like Slip. you either drive on it or you slide down it and yeah it's just it's kind of insane especially when you're carrying a bunch of gear on your back and I'm surprised I never really fell in the water. I think I got it up to my knees one time. Um, but that was just to turn the boat around just to get off the Island. We were leaving one afternoon from halfway rock. And that was the last one. And I didn't really know what the protocol was for, for leaving the Island. I'd never done this before. And Ford just told me to jump on the, like a small Zodiac boat, rubber raft. And, uh, He's like, just push and jump on, and you kind of ride down that ramp like a, a toboggan when it's at low tide because it's so slippery. We we hit the water, and, and you know that ramp has been destroyed multiple times from storms, and so there must have been some old iron underneath uh, the water, but we it had punctured the boat. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, all I have is between me and the water is this small piece of plastic and some inflated rubber which is now deflating um and we were never in any danger by any means but in my head i'm thinking oh my god all the camera gear i own is on this boat and uh i might lose it but we were able to get back and everything was safely but one thing i did learn from that was to to always be filming i i was not filming at the time and it would have been really interesting to see me because i i definitely fell on my back in that raft because we stopped so short but uh i went out and bought a gopro Probably that later that afternoon, uh, just so I could always film in those situations without worrying about the camera getting wet, since uh, those cameras are waterproof.
0: I was pretty lucky the last time I went to Halfway Rock. I uh, was flown out by helicopter, so that was a that was a fun way to land and, and you know relatively easy, of course. For those who don't know, people listening, uh, Halfway Rock Lighthouse is out in uh, Casco Bay in in Maine, southern Maine, and about ten miles out from Portland Harbor and a pretty good distance from the nearest land of any kind. So it's one of the more remote lighthouses uh, anywhere. Getting back to the filming, I'm wondering if in recent months, if the uh, COVID-19 pandemic affected your project in any way? Yeah, I think like
2: like everyone and everything, it, it affected everything I was doing. But Sort of positively, it, it helped me finish it, in a sense. I, I had some plans to keep filming, and I was sad not to to include some other folks that I wanted to include or include some of their stories uh, more in depth. My original goal was to make a 90-minute film, and yet it comes at 60 minutes now, so I lost about 30 minutes, but because COVID postponed any shooting I had planned, uh, after about a week of lockdown, I realized I should dig in and see what I could put together maybe I could finish it. And I think I had about 30 minutes and at the time, just different parts and stories, some complete, some not. And about a month or so later, after really jamming on the project, I realized I I could be done. Um, I had to bring on a, a designer. I had some, some friends that helped me on the, in all different aspects of this. But um, I had a designer come in to work on a few graphics just so I could create some animations. And then I had to get a little more creative and insert myself into the film as a as a small narrator, just to bookend the film, which I wasn't excited to do but i think it it helped and given the current situation it was a way to to get to my end goal Mm -hmm. i did end up shooting two more scenes for the film later this past summer and early in the fall one with dave waller the owner of graves light and another with a a teacher tom farager of the boston globe wrote a, a great article about the film in october and i was contacted by a bunch of different lighthouse groups in new england and people wanted to be part of the film which was which is really flattering and I wish I'd heard from all these people earlier in the process, but um, one of those stories is about a teacher and she has her students visit the lighthouse every year, uh, research them, build models and and the students love the project and they create these amazing models. And that really provided some hope for younger generations getting involved and I hadn't really come across too much of that. And um, that's kind of one of the reasons I did want to make this film is I wanted to show all the work that everyone had been doing and try to get um, younger generations to make an effort to watch the film and to go and, and volunteer at lighthouses and uh, get them get them interested.
0: Sure. Oh, that's so important. You know, a lot of us uh, in the lighthouse world are thinking about that all the time. How do we get, get younger people interested? So I'm glad. I know from speaking with you before that it's something you're, you're concerned about. So I appreciate that a lot. Can you say a little bit about what happens behind the scenes to complete a a documentary like this one?
2: With a production, you have to figure out, you know, what your project is and find a storyline. You have to write an outline of how you want that story to unfold. And, you know, of course, with documentary, that can take you quickly out of that. But it's good to have a start, middle and end and let the wind guide you a bit. But Yeah, I was writing, you know, interview questions, charging equipment, renting equipment, cleaning equipment. And then you film, which is, you know, obviously the most exciting part. Um, And then you collect all this footage and you need to organize it. You need to bring it into your editing software and and start fishing through it and pulling selects, finding those best shots or shots that support what your interviewees are talking about, um, transcribing interviews, which, which takes forever. Um, you can hire companies to do that. I did that myself just to stay on budget, but, um, I think yours, Jeremy, Eric Dolan's and Eleanor as the historians and researchers probably had the longest interviews of the project, but these were the most important and I needed to make sure I had all the answers to support some of the stories and what the characters in the film were speaking on. And then, Beyond that, you start editing and you put it all in a timeline and you're working on sound design, working on color correction to make sure that all the colors are matching throughout, um, building art cards, you know, everyone's name and what they do and design graphics to support that. I used a great company for music licensing called Marmoset. Um, they have some of the best stock and custom music you can get. Uh, they're based in Portland, Oregon. They've worked with me in the past and, and, and have always supported me as an independent filmmaker. So, so I had to, to work with them on this. And then once you get the project done, complete once you finish that final edit and get picture lock, you got to bring it into sound design because you know if you're if you're filming on Halfway Rock on a raft, you get the the roar of the engine, and then if you're filming on Thatcher Island, you get the seagulls in the background. Some of these things you want to bring to life. Um, So I brought in a a sound engineer, Tim Repper, to help me um, bring this project home and and. The sound is so important, and you know this. When you're out at a lighthouse and you hear the waves crashing and the gulls buzzing over your head on, um, those are things you want your viewer to hear and feel when they're watching the film. You want them to feel like they're at some of these locations. The film is, is just under 60 minutes, 59 minutes and 19 seconds, I believe. And I've always wanted to create a feature film and somehow I was able to finish that during the pandemic. Not, not exactly what I planned, but I can put the bow on it now and say that I made this to help some awesome people doing some some really incredible things that's that's kind of what goes into a quick quick overview of what goes into making a film mm-hmm.
0: again you did this by yourself you weren't sponsored or anything you paid for it yourself or as you were doing other things right so this was kind of a, a part-time job for uh, those years that you worked on it yeah
2: i i kind of just slowly funded it with with some paychecks here and there from my job and, and don't tell my wife all this but um <laughs> You know, it was it was it was fun to do, and she knows that it it was a hundred a percent passion for me to to do this and complete it. So she s- supported me throughout the whole way. But yeah, I mean, if you want to get something done, and and I think that was one of the crazier parts about this film is that you know on a Tuesday afternoon, Ford Reiki might send me an email and say, "Hey, we're going out tomorrow morning. Can you be there?" And if you have to be there at four, or five, six in the morning, it's hard to to wrangle up a few people to come with you as well to help you out. So. I kind of just had to do this by myself and -hmm. and,
0: and make it work. Again, for listeners who don't know, you just mentioned Ford Reiki. He's the owner of Halfway Rock Lighthouse, and he's uh, very prominent in the film. And probably visually, I I think the Halfway Rock scenes are as dynamic as anything in the film. They're they're a lot of fun. What would you say are some of the things you learned from this project? Oh,
2: I, I definitely learned a ton, Jeremy, that's for sure. I think with any larger project, whether it's Filmmaking or whatever you're doing, you know, probably with your your podcast and in any large project you work on, you you need to be organized. You need to stay organized. And I'm I'm definitely more of a jump first, think later type of person. So it's made me realize that I should probably prep a little bit more than I I normally do. Um, but I think with with documentary filmmaking, also you don't want to force any hands. You know, I didn't have any axe to grind or anything with anyone of what's happening in in the in the lighthouse world. Um, I just wanted to go out there and hear from, from different people and not interject my own bias or feelings into anything. But I think whatever my next project will be, if my wife allows me to go out and film another feature documentary, I'll definitely try to take on a much larger crew to help me with much of the process.
0: So of all the lighthouse locations you visited for the film, do you have a favorite? Ooh, that's a that's a tricky question.
2: I believe, you know, when you're when you're traveling through a lot of these lighthouses and you're going down some of these dark windy roads that at five in the morning was trying to catch sunrise it's really cool you know they're located in a lot of unique areas even some of the onshore ones like pemmicoid point or, or marshall point you know you're driving down these roads and it, you feel like you get to the end of the earth in some of these um places but i enjoyed going out to halfway rock with fort reiki had taken me out a few times and um one of the first times we went early in the morning and just being out there to watch the sunrise behind the island was was spectacular um you know, obviously, staying the night at Thatcher Island was was wild because of that storm. Um, but I, I can say my favorite lighthouse that I've never visited would be Whaleback Light. I'm not sure if you know anyone that could get <laughs> me access out there, but that might be on my that might be on my lighthouse bucket list to go out there. I've seen it I've seen it from afar and by drone, but it would be nice to step foot out there one day.
0: I happen to to know somebody who might be able to get you in there. I won't mention any names, uh, but um, uh, I am very personally involved with that lighthouse, and I'm hoping maybe you'll do a, a new documentary about Whaleback Lighthouse because uh, hopefully a lot of big things are going to be happening there, in, in uh, the not too distant future. Uh, it is an amazing lighthouse. Uh, the, those those uh, granite wave-swept lighthouses, and Halfway Rock is another one, Graves Light that you mentioned, which is in your film, and Whaleback are, You know, the, to me, they're the the most uh, Striking. They're not necessarily the prettiest lighthouses, but uh, they're the most interesting. I think historically and and visual, they're they're so interesting. What are some of the things you want people to come away with when they see your film?
2: Uh, probably to to get out there and help. I think it'd be really cool for for more people to volunteer, and that includes myself. I mean, I you know we've talked about this in the past, but I, I see photographs of all these lighthouses all over the place on social media and branding and advertising and coffee mugs. I know people are aware and I feel like maybe there's not enough volunteering and maybe that's from a younger crowd. It would be nice if we could continue to to volunteer and ensure that we can continue to visit these places, to take pictures of them, to eat lunch at them, to walk around, you know, to to paint, to you know, just explore, not only for ourselves but for, for future generations. But I I also want people when they watch the film to admire the work that you guys are doing. I mean that everyone is doing them. I think you guys are all kicking butt out there and doing unbelievable work and it's it's hard. These locations are are difficult, even if they're onshore or not. I mean the weather just beats them and you know, and the people that aren't in this film, I hope this I hope it represents the work they're doing as well. There are a lot of parallel stories out there. Um so I hope I hope they feel some of that as well.
0: Well, you definitely it definitely comes comes through how how rewarding it is, but also how difficult it is to take care of these places. Did you consider yourself a lighthouse buff before this project?
2: Definitely knew knew nothing. Knew absolutely nothing before it. I mean, maybe I knew where some lighthouses were, but I couldn't tell you a single fact story. And And probably, Jeremy, compared to you, I probably still don't know anything. I mean, I might know a few things here and there, but I I feel like I learned a lot, but I know that the history is so deep and vast. For for every lighthouse, for every keeper, there's just thousands of stories. It seems like so it's it's really cool, and I hope people dive into it that that didn't dive into it before.
0: Well, I think uh, like a lot of subjects, the the more you know about lighthouses, the more you realize that you don't know, and that's how I feel about it. I mean, I've been doing it for over 30 years, but I'm learning new stuff every every day. So, do you consider yourself a lighthouse buff now? I think I know the answer to that.
2: I'm probably an expert on what not to do while making a documentary about lighthouses. I could probably, I could probably guide someone whoever's going to make that next film on lighthouses what not to do. But uh, I know who to get in touch with. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think it's great. It's a subject that you can keep learning about. Um, you can you can pick a lighthouse and a local one or or one somewhere else across the world and, and you can learn just so much about it
0: well when i ask if you're a lighthouse buff it doesn't necessarily mean you have to know a tremendous amount about them i think you have a pretty strong strong interest in in them and uh you know if you didn't you wouldn't wouldn't have been able to do this project over several years
2: that's true i'll i'll visit i'll continue to visit lighthouses and, and support lighthouses as best i can and maybe it's
0: another film
2: or whatever it may be but yeah i definitely caught the uh the lighthouse bug that that you talk about.
0: So where can people see the film? The film will be
2: available to stream on Amazon, um, where you could buy or rent the film. If anyone hasn't visited the film's website, thelastlightkeepers.com. You can scroll to the bottom of any page, enter your email. There's a newsletter there, but there's also information about, you know, a quick link to, to find the film on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I'll, I'll also send out any other news in, in, in the future about uh, any festival or in-person screening. Hopefully, you know, by the spring or summer, the, the tides will change a little bit and hopefully we can all see each other. And the film has been submitted to, to the festival circuit, both locally and worldwide, over 30 submissions. But um, because, of, because of COVID, those experiences have changed a bit. Um, one festival, the main outdoor film festival, had reached out about potentially being the main pre- premiere for the film. Um, which will be next summer, hopefully. And if it's a safe for people to attend, and that would be a nice place to get, um, a lot of the key players in the film involved to join and hopefully we can do a Q and A and hopefully we can do a screening in person. But I think just because I've been working on this project with, with everyone for five years, I think it would just be great to get the film out now, um, give, give people something to look forward to. I mean, we're all stuck indoors for the most part. So it would be nice to sit down and watch the film together from far away, I guess.
0: Uh, I should mention that we're speaking on November 30th, but people will be hearing this in late December, so by then the film will be available on Amazon. I believe December 8th is actually the the official date. Is that right?
2: Yep. It'll be on December 8th. The film will launch, I, I believe at 12.01 a.m. I'm not exactly sure when, but I will send out a newsletter and a, a quick link for everyone to go and uh, buy the film or rent it or, or watch it, and, and hopefully people can, can check it out and see the work that everyone's doing. I think it's really important for people to see.
0: You mentioned a website a few minutes ago. Could you just mention your website again?
2: Yeah, the film, the film's website is thelastlightkeepers.com. Um, there will be right at the top of the page. You'll find a Watch Now button. That'll be for Amazon, and you can click it right there. Um, but there's also information about the film, some, some press articles, and people that were involved. So I recommend everyone checks it out.
0: And if people are interested in other work you've done and are doing, uh, where can they go to find out about that?
2: Yeah, so my personal portfolio is robapps.com, so that's my name, R-O-B-A-P-S-E.com. And it's all the work I've done in the the past. It's my personal portfolio from working in advertising and some personal short-form documentaries that I've worked on, but that's probably the best place to find it.
0: Okay, RobApps.com. Uh, do you want to say anything about what any projects that you're currently working on?
2: Um, no, I think I'm. I think I'm going to take a break for okay. now. I'm, I'm excited to get this out. You know, as I said, it was a five year journey. Um, but I think I'm going to sit back and maybe plan to do another film eventually. And if people are interested in in the Last Light Keepers, maybe I'd be able to do another lighthouse project. i know there are some in need of restoration or planning to restoration so it'd be great to partner up and, and make a feature film focusing on one lighthouse and the story and the history and the preservation efforts so that would be a blast to do and maybe that's a potential project if people check out this film
0: well i think that would be a great project and you know uh, you mentioned whaleback you have an interest in whaleback and i i hope uh, it would all come together for that so we can talk more about that at some point i have one more question for you and this is for bonus points okay so get ready what was your favorite thing about working on the last light keepers
2: um, probably meeting meeting people and hearing hearing their stories I, i i enjoy you know every time we catch up on the phone we just kind of talk about some things that are happening and i enjoy just hearing about people's passions and what they're working on like my other short film, my wife and I were able to get in the car and go and visit some areas. And it was just like this film. It was a great excuse to get out and, and learn and, and be outside. Um, it's, you know, you can you can be tempted to stay inside some days, but I've never regretted a good road trip to a lighthouse, that's for sure. So, except maybe trying to park at Portland Headlight on a weekend in the <laughs> summer. That might be the most insane place I've ever been to. Um, it's incredible how many people visit that area. But yeah, just getting out and and meeting people, I, I I have no regrets. I always tell everyone, you know, when I, when I was working on it, you know, what do you what do you hope from the film? And I said, well, worst case scenario, I met a lot of awesome people and got to hear some great stories and got to spend some time at lighthouses. So, no complaints.
0: Rob Apps, it's it's always great talking with you, and congratulations on completing the film and uh, congratulations on making such a, a wonderful film about uh, lighthouse preservation and the people involved in lighthouse preservation it's a it's a great subject and you definitely did it justice so i hope people will see the film on through amazon maybe in the future some people will get to see it at festivals like you said but the easiest way to see it again will be on amazon and again they can go to thelastlightkeepers.com and get a a link directly to that. So I hope a lot of our listeners will see it. I think they will. Rob, uh, we'll definitely be talking again. So thank you so much, Rob.
2: Thank you for having me, Jeremy. And I should say one last thing is I could not have done this project without you. So I appreciate your patience and answering all my questions and helping me get in touch with with other people. You were the first person that I contacted and you helped me through it also i i people should know that you were definitely a mentor in this project and i could not have gotten it done without you so thank you for for sticking with me over the last five years
0: well it's awfully nice of you to say that it was absolutely my pleasure but you did 99.9 percent of the the work the visual sense and uh capturing the way you, things the way you did is, is entirely you so again thank you so much rob
2: Thank you very much for having me,
0: Jeremy. A really important thing we didn't mention in the interview is that a portion of the film's earnings will be donated to Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses to assist with the preservation of Whaleback Lighthouse in Kittery, Maine, which is a cause that's very near and dear to me. So when you rent or buy this film, The Last Light Keepers, you're also helping lighthouse preservation.
1: To learn more about Rob Apps's documentary, The Last Light Keepers, and to find out how to see it, go online to www.thelastlightkeepers.com. You can also subscribe for news about this film and Rob's other projects.
0: It was a pleasure to speak with Rob for this podcast and to watch him put the documentary together over the past five years. There's a lot of fascinating material on lighthouse preservation in the film, but what hooks you when you watch it is Rob's skill as a visual storyteller. It really is beautiful to look at.
1: Next, we're going to listen to a chat with Dwight Berry about visiting the lighthouses of North Carolina's Outer Banks.
0: Yes, we are. That's right. I first met Dwight when he took part in one of the van tours I used to give. Dwight lives near Baltimore, Maryland, and he's a dentist by trade and a lighthouse aficionado and photographer by avocation. I always enjoy talking lighthouses with Dwight, and today you're going to hear a conversation I recently had with him about the lighthouses of the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking with my friend Dwight Berry down in Maryland, uh, close to Baltimore, and today we're going to be talking about the lighthouses of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. How are things down in Maryland, Dwight? Well, things are doing okay.
3: I mean, we are handling everything that's going on right now with the pandemic fairly well. Maryland's doing okay, but like everybody else, we're just trying to stay safe and protect ourselves, and I'm missing the travels of seeing the lighthouses this year, I wasn't able to get to do any of that as much yeah. as I wanted to. I did do a few, but for the most part, I'm eagerly awaiting the opportunity to be able to get back out there and see lights again, because that helps to really you know, make the year somewhat more pleasurable. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. This is the first year in, I don't know, probably th- more than 30 years where I basically didn't visit any lighthouses except a, a few trips over to Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, which is 10 minutes from my home here. And I'm involved with the group that takes care of it. But other than that, well, actually one visit to Whaleback Lighthouse, which is right near there. But other than that, that's that's really about it this year. So all of us are looking forward to resuming our, our lighthouse travels. And in, in that spirit, we're going to talk today about the lighthouses in the Outer Banks And I'm going to uh, admit something right here that is a little embarrassing for me to admit on this podcast, because I don't know who's going to be listening. I have never been to the Outer Banks. I have uh, certainly written about the lighthouses there and read about them and everything. It's been on my bucket list for years now, and uh, I am going to make it in the next year or two, I'm determined to. So I'm looking forward to your tips and observations, and I'm sure will help me when I get down there. I'm sure that when you do, you're going to enjoy it. I I plan to enjoy it for sure. Uh, Let's see, where do we want to start with our discussion today?
3: Well, basically, I'd like to begin, you know, talking about if you're going to drive there, because that's part of, to me, the experience. Um, If you're driving to the Outer Banks, there's so many towns and little areas on your way to the Outer Bank area that will help make the experience something that is going to be, you know, very memorable to you in addition to the lighthouses themselves. A lot of people like to stop along the way. Uh, Kitty Hawk, the town of Kitty Hawk, is there, and that has its history. And people will stop there and basically maybe have lunch or dinner or something there and continue on to the Outer Banks entry point, which is part of the um, national parks. And it's um, something, it's it's a pleasant drive. I recommend going during the summer or... You know, late spring on a nice day, maybe do a vacation there for a week or weekend, depending on, you know, the time that you have, because you have both the beauty of the lighthouses, but you also have beach environment as well as camping for people who like to camp. So it's definitely something that I think as a lighthouse enthusiast, it's something that you would like to do because you can get the joy of the lighthouses, but you can also have the fun of camping if you're a camper or if you're a beach person. So it's great. And I just wanted to talk about maybe a couple of them, a couple of the lights that I visited that, you know, maybe just give you a little bit of my insight on what I liked about them and um, some of the things you might be able to see when you go there.
0: Yeah, sounds good.
3: So the first one that when I was driving down, the first one I came to, it's called Roanoke Marshes. And basically Roanoke Marshes looks like it's, not in the area where it should be. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, it looks almost like it's a boathouse. Mm -hmm. But it's actually really a very nice replica, I believe, of the original Roanoke Marshes lighthouse. And it's very picturesque. You can get it from different angles. It's not difficult to access. Um, It actually is located in an area where you wouldn't think a lighthouse would be when you're traveling to it. But once you get over there and you say, okay, now I get it. But um, that's the first lighthouse that you come to before you actually get to the the outer banks which are the barrier islands and they're about 200 miles long so i recommend stopping there getting your photo op and then continuing on and when you continue you're going to come to the entrance point to where cape hatteras and the cape hatteras national park is and when you get there the first thing that you come to is a visitor's station and you come there it has a museum tells you a little bit about the Outer Banks. It, of course, gives you a map that you can travel to the different lighthouses. Being that it's 200 miles long, basically the light, the, the islands, because they're islands, are connected with the exception of, I believe, the last two. And you have to uh, take ferries. They have ferries that you can get on that are for vehicles. Mm-hmm. And I think the first one was maybe 30 minutes and... The second one, I, I would say they're about 30 minutes each to get to the different islands. Um, you can drive ac- across the islands, of course, but when you're going in between t- two of the islands, you have to take the ferries. The ferry system is very well organized. You can call ahead to make reservations and set up your time to you know, be there so that you can travel. And uh, it's a nice, beautiful ride on the ferry. You know, You can take great pictures. Some of the lights you can actually see. When you're on the water so that's another addition to and another nice point but the first one you come to when you get out of the visitors area is body island lighthouse and that is a beautiful light most people see it it's a black and white striped lighthouse it sits in an area where if you're photographing it you have beautiful blue sky behind you it's like I have it as my screensaver on my phone because it's like one of the best pictures I've taken many, many years because it's a really pretty light to take to photograph on a good day. Body Island is, the, like I said, it's the first one that you come to because it's the first one on the chain of lights that go along the, the Outer Banks. And most people recognize it because you can see it when you're traveling to different areas through the Outer Banks. You can always see it somewhere. So you always look toward body because you can see it. So that's a pretty cool thing about body island. Then the other light, as you continue, you come to the most famous as far as the United States, because that's when you come to Cape Hatteras. And Cape Hatteras is the tallest lighthouse in the United States. And it has a very interesting recent history because in 1999, I believe it is, they actually moved the lighthouse yeah. from its original position in move a distance. You can probably speak more to that.
0: It was 2,900 feet they moved it. I, I remember that. And I just mm-hmm. want to mention too that we're speaking on December 11th and in a few days, December 16th, people are going to be hearing this a little bit later, but uh, we're speaking just before the 150th anniversary of the, the current tower at Cape Hatteras, the 1870 tower and they're having a big celebration on December 16th. But I right. recently interviewed two people from the uh, Outer Banks Lighthouse Society, Bet Pageant and John Havel, and uh, it makes me more than ever want to get down there to see that. <laughs> wow, see that
3: that's lighthouse. really cool. I, I, I didn't know that myself, so that's interesting that we're discussing this at this time because that makes it even more you know, relevant, so that's pretty cool to know. Yeah. But yeah, that lighthouse is beautiful. Oh, Jeremy, it's. I know, I know you've seen pictures, but... A picture can only do but so much. When mm-hmm. you actually see it in person, it's first of all it's been maintained extremely well, both inside and outside. They do a wonderful job. The land that it's on is very well kept. Um, you can also see some of the other buildings, and uh, it's a re- it's worth the trip. That alone is worth the trip. There's so many people usually there they're pretty good about getting you in and they have a time frame in which you can go in like most of the lights, you know, you can go up get your pictures and come back down. But it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. And then you get your stamp if you're part of the Passport Society. I make sure I get my stamp and then you keep going. But it could it could be like the jewel of your trip if you wanted to be. You can do it before. Some people do it on their way in, some people do it on their way out. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get to it because I know that that was, you know, for me. I was like, okay, I got to keep Hatters. you know. So that was a good thing for me then you can continue on and as you go further down then you have to take a ferry to the next location and that was i believe mm-hmm. that was coke Island now that was very very interesting because when you get on the island although you're able to drive the inhabitants that live there the people that live there use golf carts right. so you see a lot of golf carts around there and you can get to your where you need to but you park and then you can walk around and that lighthouse is really a nice lighthouse it's not very tall it's you know i guess it's typical to the type of lighthouse that it looks like for as far as i can't think of the style right now but i know you know the style of that
0: well, but it's, a it's pretty simple stone conic or is it stone. brick actually it's brick right it's brick i'm trying to think of a
3: lighthouse that's very similar to i know the one here in maryland
0: Piney Point um, is kind of similar, I think, right? But it's much that, shorter. That is
3: correct. So, those of you from me, I'm trying to give some people a visual reference. Piney Point is extremely similar to it. Yes. In fact, when I saw it, it made me think of Piney Point. Mm-hmm. So, that's a good reference. And um, when I got there, it was just about, as a matter of fact, it had just closed because it was coming, it was getting ready to be sunset. So, I got some beautiful sunset pictures, but I wasn't able to go in. But it was still worth it because the backdrop with the sun behind it was amazing. There's good places to eat on the island, too. So if, when you get there, if you are hungry at that time, there's a couple of places that are good to eat there. So then after you finish that, if you want to continue, then you could take a, it's a, about a 30, 35 minute ferry ride to Cape Lookout. Uh, well, actually, to the point where you get another ferry to Cape Lookout because what happens is you have to take a ferry to a certain area. Then you can drive to the location where you can get a little boat. It like a little tandem boat that takes you out to Cape Lookout. I spent, um, I think, oh my gosh, maybe two hours there or more, just because first of all, you're at a beach, so you could go swimming and do all of that stuff. And then the lighthouse itself is just wonderful to photograph. When you're on the beach, you get a full view of the lighthouse the keepers house you have museum that's there that talks about the island and you also have different ranger stations that you can go to and they tell you different information so it's it's definitely one of those things that you might want to go for a day because Mm -hmm. since there is a beach there a lot of people go there and they just swim and you know have a good time at the beach while the lighthouse is right there in back so that was unique to me because most of the lights that you go to there you know you drive up to them or you walk to an area and you get good pictures but this one sits right on the beach so that was really i liked that a lot plus it was really enjoyable to just take the boat out there and getting the water splashing and feeling the breeze it was it was that was for me another highlight and you can there's a museum there as well as a um, gift shop the museum tells you the history i believe also if i'm not mistaken i saw There was a Fresnel lens in there because I like to photograph different Fresnel lenses. So that's another thing that you can also look forward to. So, yeah, it was it, it was wonderful. I did forget that there is another light on your way to the Outer Banks, and that was Curituck. That's another one. It's a brick tower. And you actually will see the keeper's house. There's another house in the keeper's house i believe that's where the um, museum is they preserve that very well very very well um, when you go in they give you a great history of the light you can see a lot of the um, artifacts that they have from that time period and when you go up to the tower you get a very nice view of the outer banks because Mm -hmm. since it's at the beginning you can look down and you can see the islands and from what I was told, I went in the day, but from what I was told in the evening, depending on what time you go, you actually can see some of the lights flashing.
0: And I believe uh, has still has a, an active first order Fresnel lens, it,
3: one of the few on does. the East Coast, yeah. Yes, it does. And it's beautiful. And if you got a good zoom, you can zoom right in on it. I took some great pictures of it. So you're yeah, absolutely right. Yes, it does. The Outer Banks is definitely for a lighthouse enthusiast. Someplace someone would want to visit because you can really get that good feeling about lights, and at the same time, it's great for vacationing.
0: Sounds good to me. <laughs> you know, I, I really do need to get there, and your your tips are gonna be very helpful, I know, and I'm sure I'll be back in touch with you when I do go, and maybe we could actually rendezvous and do some of it together. I would, I would love that, too. That sounds
3: great. I would definitely like that. A lot of people have not had the, I should say, the opportunity or the blessing to be able to see lights with you, like myself, so that's always a great thing because <laughs> then you get the history. Plus, you're a great person. So, those of you who hear this podcast, if you ever get an opportunity to experience seeing a lighthouse with Jeremy, you'll understand what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> well, thanks. I would say the same for about you. So, so this is uh, you know all uh, very interesting. I just want to mention also that of course you know we're still in the midst of this pandemic. So these lighthouses. Some of the ones we've talked about are are normally open to the public. Some of them have been open this year with restrictions, but uh, it's not like a normal year. But hopefully, hopefully they'll be back to, to normal by next year. At least we certainly hope so. I hope so,
3: because these are all worth visiting and you can go into all of them. So unfortunately, COVID has prevented that. But like you said, hopefully next year that will prevent because it's wonderful to see both inside and out of them.
0: Yeah, it's a great group of lighthouses that you can actually tour inside. There really aren't many places like that. To have a cluster like that where they're all open to the public is kind of unusual.
3: And the fact that they're so close to each other is another thing that's
0: really interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating area and a bunch of great lighthouses, and, and I really appreciate your sharing your personal observations and, and tips. I'm sure people will find it very helpful. So, Dwight, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, and we'll do it again sometime. Maybe... Uh, Maybe talk more about uh, the other North Carolina lights we haven't talked about. Or, I mean, there's a lot of different areas we can talk about. So
3: I look forward to it. I appreciate that, yes. And you can take care of yourself and continue to be safe in this time. And um, I look forward to when we
0: speak again. Thank you so much and take care. You take care.
1: As always, we thank all the members, volunteers, and staff of the US Lighthouse Society and all its chapters and affiliates. Go to uslhs.org to read about the tours, preservation grants, research catalog, and all other things the society offers. Memberships and donations support this podcast and other education and preservation projects.
0: Thank you to everyone all over the world who is working to preserve history of any kind. We're all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. And as always, thanks so much for listening and
1: Keep a good light. Let it shine, I go. I'm let it
0: shine.
1: Let it shine, let it
2: shine.